back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus Lad, and guys, I'm not going to lie to you, the last episode that I released, which was about Legion of Superheroes Volume 4, Number 5, that last episode that I released is the very closest that I have ever come to falling asleep in the middle of a podcast. And to me, it's all the sadder because of the fact that I was podcasting solo. You know, you would think that podcasting solo means that you, you, your attention is at least a little bit more focused because you're the one that's doing all of the talking. You know, it's not like there's somebody else involved that uh, can pick up the slack and then maybe they get going on a long tangent or something like that and then next thing you know no i was podcasting totally solo and even so i damn near fell asleep just like right there in the middle of everything and hopefully it's not too obvious but i decided to leave that stuff in just because well i think it's kind of funny and who knows maybe some of you for posterity's sake, want to point back to that as the episode where you can say, yep, this is the episode where Magnus almost fell asleep right in the middle of everything, even though the dumbass was podcasting all by himself, so it shouldn't have happened, but here it is anyway. So, anyway. <clears throat> now, given the fact that the last episode uh, was uh, dedicated to Legion of Superheroes number five, what do you want to bet that today's episode is dedicated to Legion of Superheroes number six. Well, you'd win your bet, because today I'm going to be talking about Legion of Superheroes number six. And <clears throat> honestly, there's really not a whole lot of preamble that, that leads into this. I've done quite a bit of uh, preamble and just general bullshittery leading into... Uh, comic discussion in my previous episodes lately, especially the ones about Legion of Superheroes. So I'm just going to get right into it by saying that this is Legion of Superheroes number six. Cover date is April of 1990. Writers are Keith Giffen, Tom Beerbaum, Mary Beerbaum, and Al Gordon. Penciler is The GIF, inker is Al Gordon, colorist is Tom McCraw, letterer is Todd Klein, editors are Mike <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, Michael Yuri and Mark Wade. Story synopsis is as follows. Now we can continue our story here in the Glorithverse. EarthGov, which is secretly run by Dominators, hires Sunboy to in turn hire a private investigator named Celeste Rockfish to find out anything at all to do with Roxas, which is to say the man who killed the former Legionnaire known as Block. But this business with Sunboy is a complete farce. Celeste <clears throat> Celeste is meant to come up with nothing, because that's what EarthGov wants. Specifically, that's what the Dominators want. Celeste is accompanied by a bodyguard named Bounty to travel to the planet Trom in order to speak with Element Lad to see if he has any information at all regarding Roxas. Meanwhile, the, the former Legionnaires current Legionnaires, wannabe Legionnaires, whatever you want to call them, the, the group of characters who are trying to start the Legion of Superheroes back up again, travel to the Sorcerer's World to ask Mordru to release Missa, which is to say, the White Witch. To be continued. 
So, what did I think? Well, you know, guys, I've gone on at really great length about all of the different covers and everything to Legion of Superheroes Volume 4. And the reason for that is because they're all really great. Now, I could, to be totally honest with you, I could take or leave the cover for number two. There's nothing bad about it, but at the same time, there's nothing really great about it either. It's just kind of there. It's basically uh, the uh, cover for Legion of Superheroes number two. It's basically Ultra Boy falling through midair as he wrestles with one of the cyborg assassins, one of the really polite cyborg assassins. And indeed, that's very representative of what happens in the story, but it's, it's a little bit generic as covers go, and especially as covers for this run of the Legion go. You know, it's just, like I say, there's just nothing about it that really stands out. You know, you could have used that just as easily as a panel in, in the issue itself, which is no criticism. It's not really a, a compliment either. It's just, again, it's just kind of a statement of fact. The cover for, for this, for uh, Legion number six, this again is another, I don't want to say it's a bad cover because it's really not. But at the same time, you know, it, it just doesn't grab me the same, the same way that a lot of the, uh, the covers for previous issues have. Even, I might say, to a less, though to a lesser degree, Legion number 2, which I just talked about, there's just really nothing spectacular or poignant or symbolic or really anything about this cover. I mean, it's just kind of here. Now, to get into specifics of this cover, this is a variation on the type of cover that you've seen a bunch of times where you get a close-up of the villain's hand and on each of his fingertips is various and sundry of the characters in the story. And you've seen that sort of cover millions and millions and millions of times. It's basically meant to symbolize the the characters or the protagonists uh, inability to overcome the villain. They're, they're sort of I'm trying not to say they're, they're ineffectual uh, attempts to, to overcome the antagonist. And they're, it's almost like they're, they're puppets for the villain, right? And that's kind of literal in covers like this because, you know, there is such a thing as finger puppets, you know? And so it's, I don't know, it's just, it's one of those cover ideas. I don't want to go so far as to say it's a comic book like a superhero comic book trope, but it, at the same time, it's not exactly breaking new ground either. So put a pencil to it, I guess. <clears throat> so again, not a bad cover. I like it, but it's just, for me at least, it's just not up to snuff as compared to some of the previous covers, like the cover for issue number five, right? Now that, my friends, is a damn good cover. This. It's competent, it's well done, it's very superhero-y and, and all that, but I don't know, it's just nothing about this really stands out from any of the zillions of other covers that you've seen that are just like this, you know? The close-up of the villain hand, uh, of the villain's hand, and he's got the, the various uh, protagonists as his fingertips. I mean, you've seen covers like this, you know, zillions and zillions of times. So, it's really well done, don't get me wrong, I'm just saying that it's not particularly original. So, 
anyway, moving right along, getting into the uh, the issue itself, page one is we've already kind of gotten a little bit of a of an idea of what a bastard uh, Sunboy is, you know, somewhat in the first issue, quite a bit in the second issue, and I would say by omission in the third issue. But here it really does get driven home that Sunboy really is a son of a bitch. He's he's basically meeting with Celeste Rockfish in a bar. He's buying her drinks and he's being he's doing his I'm so charming routine. And the the shit of it is, guys, it's working. You know, he's being all flirty and everything with her and she's falling for it. You know, uh, you can I mean, she's basically swooning, is what it comes down to. She's stuttering, stammering, she can barely look him in the eye. And, you know, there is a degree to which Sunboy is a media figure propped up by the Dominators. He is probably pretty well respected by most of the public, you know, notwithstanding the fact that this really does look like a mullet that he's got going here. He, he probably is very widely admired by the public just for his fame and for his prestige his privilege his access and I would say especially for his history as a legionnaire and the thing about it is guys this is a risky creative decision for the gift to take you know or for somebody to take you know because I'm not aware off the top of my head of Sunboy being anybody's favorite Legionnaire, but you would think there have got to be at least a few people out there who are fans. And I don't think I'd go so far as to say that Sunboy is an out-and-out villain in this run of the Legion, but he's definitely not a hero. I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. He's definitely not a hero. And... This is a, a real creative risk, you know, because, yeah, the Legion have been scattered all across the galaxy. Yeah, a lot of them are not even especially interested necessarily in even being Legionnaires anymore. You know, Saturn Girl and Lightning Lad, I'm looking pretty much right at you, you know, and so on and so forth. But it's a different level that we're dealing with here in seeing Sunboy He's basically doing his own worst enemy's bidding, and in a weird kind of way, he's sort of happy to be doing it. You know, now it's one thing, or it would have been one thing if it eventually came out somewhere in the narrative that, you know, Sunboy, he got a bad rap, he, he got railroaded by uh, the Dominators, they made it pretty clear that, hey, you're gonna go out there and, and, and be our front man, to be our PR guy or we're going to release this damning information that we're blackmailing you with, or, or we're going to kill your brother, or, or, or something like that. You know, if they had some kind of, this is the point, if they had some kind of leverage over Sunboy, that would at least give him kind of an out. Sort of, you know? I mean, there is a sense in which, you know, you would think that any self-respecting legionnaire who has basically found himself being leveraged by the Dominators would just say, Fuck it, you know, do your worst. I, I am not going to serve you, you know. But there's no real indication that anything like that is what's going on with Sunboy. It's almost like he's sort of a willing accomplice. And the part about it that just, at least for me, just kind of burns my balls 
is that Roxas murdered Block. Block is Sunboy's former teammate. You know, you would think... <clears throat> I don't exactly have, like, encyclopedic knowledge or anything like that, but you would think that, you know, Block, just being the kind of gentle giant that he was, you know, Mr. Mr. Friendly, Mr. Get-Along-With-Everybody, he would have been friends with with Sunboy. And for Sunboy to just, like, just fucking betray him like he did... Just write him off. I mean, we we can we can kind of infer that Sunboy is willingly betraying the the entire Legion of Superheroes and doing what he's doing. <clears throat> he was at least aware of the fact that Roxas was going to be released from prison by the Dominators, specifically so he could uh, murder the uh, the uh, Legionnaires, and presumably Sunboy was just fine with all of that. But specifically the fact that it was Block that was murdered, presumably a friend of Sunboy's, and somebody who was a friend to Sunboy. Right here on page one, uh, this is panel seven, Sunboy has the, he has the balls to get this kind of misty look in his eye, saying that Block was my teammate, my friend. And it's like, motherfucker, you knew that this or something like this was what was going to happen. <clears throat> and now you have you you have the balls to just sit there and summon up all these crocodile tears uh, so that you can recruit somebody to do a fucking cover-up? It's a fuck you. <clears throat> and like I say, I mean, this is like, you know, to me, this is really good, really dramatic writing. Sorry, I'm going to get a sip off of my Coke here. My throat is fucking dry and I don't even know why. <clears throat> and hell with it, you know, since I'm taking kind of a mini break here, I'm gonna vape a little bit. <clears throat> anyway. It's just, it's a real creative risk to, I don't want to go so far as to say vilify Sunboy because I don't think that's exactly it, but the motherfucker is a traitor, okay? He's he's collaborating with the enemy, willingly, as far as we can tell, and, you know, I mean, and to do all that, he's kind of uh, playing Celeste a little bit, you know? He's he's being all flirty, He's he's giving her the smolder you know, and all that, and it's, fuck you, man. And I know I keep cursing Sunboy here, but this is actually meant to be a compliment, all right? Because like I keep saying and not really developing, it's a creative risk to do something like this with somebody who heretofore had been one of the heroes. He'd been one of the good guys. He'd been one of the protagonists. You know, you were supposed to worry about Sunboy when he flew off into battle, because who knows, this is the Legion of Superheroes after all. There's really no guarantee that he's coming back from this adventure alive, you know? And yet, the GIF saw this as an opportunity to position, I'm just going to say it, he's positioning Sunboy as an absolute traitor, you know? He's just, he, he's a son of a bitch. And... It's, it's just, uh, 
just such a, a clever idea. It's a creative idea. Most people in the gift's position probably would have wanted to play it safe. They probably wouldn't have wanted to, to take the risk of setting up any of the former legionnaires as a traitor. And yet that's what happens here, you know? And it's just... <clears throat> Uh, it's just good. I just love this. This is I, I I hate Sunboy because of this run of the Legion, you know. But this is all intended to be a compliment, you know. And I'm not sure if I'm conveying that well enough. But it's just just such good writing, I tell you. So getting into page two, we you know what we're seeing here. This is basically Cersei. She's listening in on Sunboy and him flirting with with God of Art, Celeste. I was about to say, I was about to say Cersei again. But yeah, she's Cersei is listening in on Sunboy flirt with Celeste. A lot of S consonants going on here. And she's she's basically this is this is the girlfriend who has been with her boyfriend long enough that she can kind of see through his bullshit. A little bit. You know, she's sitting there rolling her eyes saying, you know, geez, Morgna, no woman's going to fall for this shit because she wouldn't fall for this shit. You know, she knows Sunboy well enough to know when he's playing somebody. And that's exactly what's happening here. And she kind of resents Sunboy in a strange kind of way. And this was actually the moment, this page right here. This is really the moment when you realize this is a this is a kind of one-sided relationship. You know, Celeste can God, I keep saying Celeste. Cersei can she can roll her eyes and she can act like she's above it all, but at the end of the day, she loves Sunboy. She is in absolute love with Sunboy. She's in love with a man who doesn't love her back. You know, it's a, simple as that. And we've all seen people who are trapped in relationships like this. You know, they're with somebody that they love who doesn't love them, at least not as much as they love them, you know? And it's a pretty one-sided relationship. You know it's going to end badly. Odds are, both of the people in the relationship know that it's going to end badly, but the one who's truly in love can't bring themselves to end it, you know, because there's always a chance, they think. There's always a possibility that someday the other person's going to realize how much they actually are in love with each other and everyone's going to live happily ever after. It fucking never happens that way, but... Yeah. Anyways, it's, I don't know. And this again kind of speaks to the fact that Sunboy is a real son of a bitch. And for as much as I've kissed Keith Giffen's ass all through uh, this run of Legion comics, and I've just, I've complimented his art, I've complimented his writing, I've complimented the pace at which all of the story, you know, all these different stories have unfolded. I've, uh, I've applauded, you know, his bravery and taking all of these amazing creative risks. Here we get to something I'm going to kind of nitpick on a little bit. This is page two, panel two, where we see on the left side of the panel, a close-up of uh, Celeste Rockfish's face. 
And then what seems like, what seems to be immediately behind her is one of the Dominators. And it's like, the fuck am I even, what is this? What, what am I looking at here? You know, why? Because I don't think we're supposed to assume that a Dominator is actually standing directly behind Celeste. Because, you know, Dominators, you would think, they're not exactly persona non grata on Earth. But nobody wants to be seen in public standing around next to a dominator, right? And so all of this is kind of, you know, this uh, the surveillance that, that Cersei and this dominator have, uh, Sunboy and Celeste under. This is, maybe it's being done from a private room. They're behind like a, 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 a one-way mirror or whatever you call that mirror that you can see through. I can't remember if that's a one-way mirror or two-way mirror or what. But this, the interrogation room mirror is what I'm talking about here. You know, and honestly, this by itself is kind of a little bit of a critique of uh, the GIF and that it's not really clear what the geography here is, like what the layout of the room is and where Cersei and the Dominator are hanging out, that they're they're keeping tabs on all this stuff. But for sure, right here on page two, panel two, I don't think we're supposed to infer that the Dominator is standing directly behind Celeste. But that's sure what it looks like. And so, I, I don't know. It's like, what am I supposed to make of this? So, um, uh, GIF, if you're listening to this, maybe this is something you could have done a little bit better, you know? So, anyway. One of the things, though, that comes out right here on page two, though, is that this is meant to be basically a little bit of a sandbagged investigation, right? Basically, EarthGov wants to go through the Kabuki theater in public of they're investigating Roxas and they're trying to find out what's going on with the Legion in general and Block in particular and, you know, what is this all about? Celeste isn't really meant to find anything, though. And that becomes extremely clear because the Dominator makes a point of saying that, you know, since the Daily Planet linked Prox... Uh, Roxas's account to EarthGov, we are all vulnerable now. We're all exposed, potentially. And then he, uh, Dominator goes on to say, this is, again, page two, this time in panel five. He says, you know, you better make sure that if she finds anything, she turns up dead. Otherwise, you're going to be joining her in the grave because we're going to, you know, basically saying that we're going to kill you too, you know. So basically, this is meant to be a, a, a lose-lose situation. You know, heads, Celeste loses. Tails, she loses. You know, if she finds nothing, then she finds nothing. That's great. But if she finds anything, it's Cersei's job to make sure that Celeste doesn't live long enough to tell the tale. And this is just, I mean, this is just fucking twisted. You know, this is just disgusting on every possible level. And yet, you know, there's always the cynical son of a bitch in the room who suggests that things similar to this happen in real life all the time. And, you know, look, whatever, I'm not even going to get into that. But it's just, again, this is one of those times when I can't help wondering if the GIF is maybe throwing in some real world conspiracy theory saying, hey, at least in fiction, sometimes these conspiracy theories are fucking true, you know? And so anyway, it's just kind of interesting. Now, one kind of interesting bit of business here is on page two. I'm trying to figure out what exactly Cersei is smoking. It doesn't look completely like a conventional cigarette. 
You know, I mean, maybe what we're supposed to infer is that what Celeste is smoking, it's a cigarette, and she's holding it in her mouth with a cigarette holder. So, hmm. But I don't know. It's just, you look at the mouthpiece on it. Uh, this is on, uh, th this is in uh, panel uh, four. And it looks like it's got, if this was an e-cig, I would say this is kind of like a drip tip. And so I don't think we're supposed to assume that she's vaping since vaping wasn't, it, there were electronic cigarettes back in the 80s, believe it or not, but I don't think we're supposed to assume that she's vaping, but it's like at the same time, this doesn't really look like a conventional cigarette either, so what the fuck? I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. So uh, it, it almost looks kind of like the uh, cigarettes that they use in Watchmen. You know, um, it, it doesn't have that sort of globe shape near near the end of it, like it like the uh, cigarette thingies and in, in, in Watchmen have. But it does have a little bit of a cylinder-looking thing on there. So I don't know. I mean, it could be a lot of things, I suppose. Anyway, so moving right along, the the Dominator and Circe, they just sort of part ways. She hops aboard her little shuttle here. And here again, it, it just... It, it This just reminds me of dialogue that somebody who's trapped in a one-sided uh, relationship, this is probably more or less what their in internal monologues probably sound like. Because in panel nine, right here on page two, Cersei thinks to herself, damn him, meaning Sunboy, damn him anyway. Never took me to the St. Talbot's Club. And yet here he is doing it for Celeste Rockfish. So obviously Cersei is kind of sort of really jealous and I don't know. I mean, God, this is just so true to life, you know? Eh. I don't know. So anyway, moving right along and getting into page three on the planet Tharn, this is, it, this is basically, this is more true. He's ranting to, to one of his little probe assistants and he's basically just unloading on the Legion of superheroes and the way that they do things. And this, again, just sort of feeds into this idea I have that Mordrew ain't all there, guys. He's he's a little... Notwithstanding the fact that he's a murderous, psychopathic maniac. I mean, literally, I think the guy has got a screw loose, you know? Not just for the fact that he goes around killing people, or at least he's willing to go around killing people. He really is mentally ill, you know? Because he's sitting here and he's griping and complaining to uh, his probe assistant. He's basically talking about the Legion, saying, do they come to congratulate me from saving this world, meaning Tharn, for saving this world from the Kund menace? Do they apologize for all their past affronts? Oh, no. Would never cross their minds. As always, they come to take something that is mine. And we're going to find out what he's talking about. And this is just about the level of value that Mordru puts on human life, or as it were, sentient life. And it's, this is just, it, it, it's a pretty big come down, you know, considering the fact that in just the last issue, which is to say issue number five, we saw Mordrew, well, to the degree that we saw him at all, we saw Mordrew as the master of all he surveyed on planet Earth. And right here in issue number six, the Glorith verse. 
Well, here in the Glorithverse, he's not exactly master of all he surveys. He, it looks like he's got pretty much free run of the planet Tharn, and he is certainly a force to be reckoned with, but by no means is he the sort of galaxy-wide threat that I at least interpreted him as being back in issue number five, which took place obviously in the Mordruverse. So, I don't know, it's just, what a comedown this is. And one of the things that I don't know is... Just off the top of my head, I don't remember if it's ever made clear in these issues or not. Whether or not Mordrew is aware of the fact that the Mordrew verse ever existed, that he was once top banana, and basically people lived or died at his command. You know, it's not clear if Mordrew in the Glorith verse is aware of the Mordrew verse, because in the Mordrew verse, Mordrew was aware of the Trapper verse. So, anyway, it's just, just kind of makes you wonder, is all. So, anyway, moving right along, getting into page, uh, pages four and five, we, we basically see the, the Legion, they've landed on Tharn, and they're basically trying to figure out how best to deal with Mordrew. Basically, what they've decided upon, at least to start with, is to use negotiation as a preliminary tactic. And what they don't know, but which comes out on page five, is that Mordrew is listening in, okay? He knows what they're saying. You know, he knows broadly what they're up to, you know? And it's just, to me, this is the sort of thing that Mordrew would do, you know? He, he would have some kind of method of spying on people that he knows beyond any shadow of a doubt are definitely allied against him. You know, he's not going to allow them to just land willy-nilly on his planet without finding out what they're up to first. And I don't know, it just, it, it goes to character. It speaks to the capabilities that were at least implied in the fifth issue that Mordrew had. Mordrew and, and his minions, they had the ability to spy on people and all that. And so basically though, what Mordrew hears is that number one, they're here to negotiate. Number two, if negotiation fails, an attack, well, that's plan B. So Mordrew basically doesn't really like that very much. So beginning on page six and then going straight on through uh, for the next really several pages, going on up to uh, page 11, the various uh, uh, legionnaires are subjected to their very worst memories, right? So that's number one. But number two, you get the idea that these are not necessarily literal memories. What Mordrew is basically doing is he's projecting them into their memory of whatever their worst memory is. But then he's adding some extra some extra twists of the knife to make their wor they're already their worst memories even more traumatic. And guys, that is dark. Now look, right here on page seven, I just want to go on the record right now and saying that I really don't like all of these uh, rapey McDate rape uh, comics that come that have been coming out. You know, I think that this is such a sensitive and painful issue for a lot of people that using it, even if it's in a negative sort of way, 
using it too often in fiction, it, I don't know why, but I just, I worry that it's a, it's too upsetting to too many people. You know, that's what I worry about. That people who are survivors of this sort of thing, maybe the last thing they want to see is at least the implication of somebody being raped. And yet that's basically what we're seeing here on page seven. You know, no, you don't see the act, but you can kind of, you can use your imagination and you can, you can figure out what's coming next. And I don't know. I'm just, I've never really been all that comfortable with it. But the reason that I'm going to excuse it here is because, you know, this isn't meant for entertainment, you know? This isn't meant, I, I don't care what anybody says. You look at some of the, the rape shit that you see in some other comics, and I kind of have to wonder sometime, uh, sometimes, you know, did the writer and the artist of this, this rapey shit, are they trying to titillate the reader? Because I kind of wonder about that sometimes. I mean, you know, it, otherwise I'm kind of at a loss to figure out just, you know, why the fuck do, does this keep coming up in comics, you know? And it's like, I sometimes wonder if we're supposed to, like we readers are supposed to get some kind of like sick pleasure out of, I don't know. It just, it, it, it it's disgusting to even talk, talk about, you know, cause it, you know, you feel like you need a shower the minute the subject even comes up, but it just kind of makes you wonder here. But again, I'm willing to cut some slack on this issue is number one, this is meant to be illustrative and symbolic of just how horrible and painful and just horrifying this this memory is in this case the character is Kono how how horrifying this 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 experience was for Kono and the other thing is again i don't i don't want to read too much into this but it keeps coming up throughout this issue you know Kono's dialogue or her inner monologue or whatever this is she keeps saying, I was only five. I was only five. Now, one way of looking at it is she was only five years old when she watched her mother get shot to death and maybe other things by these space pirates, right? She was only five years old when that happens, well, when that happened to her. And so that could be what, what she's talking about. She could also be talking about something else that happened to her when she was only five years old. It started with her mother, and then when it was over, the assailants found Kono, and she was only five. And, again, I mean, this is... I want to be careful how I say this, because, you know, I don't want to... I'm already probably looking a little hypocritical to a lot of you. I don't like seeing shit like this in comics, but... The reason I'm going to excuse it here is, number one, at the time that this comic book came out, you didn't have comic books about rape coming out seemingly, you know, eight, nine, ten times a year, you know? So there's that. The other thing is, this is meant to show the horror of what this experience meant for, for Kono, right? And then, last of all, I want to, again, I want to be careful how I, how I, phrase this, I'm not saying, basically this is showing you just enough, you know, you can, based on the way that the space pirate is standing, based on the way that uh, Kono's mother has been thrown to the floor, 
you can infer what's about to happen, but you don't really see anything, you know? And so, I don't know. All in all, and the other thing is, it's over so quick. I mean, there's only really one panel that implies something. And the fact is, I'm the one who's who's inferring that that, you know, rape is what happened here. It could be that he was taking off his jacket so he can continue beating the snot out of her with his fist. I'm not saying that's somehow better. I'm just saying that, you know, like I say, rape is just such a horrible thing. It's it, it's such a painful experience for a lot of people. You know, you, I just don't want to see shit like that in my comics, okay? I just, I don't, you know? But again, I'm willing to cut some slack on this and it's like I'm digging myself a hole here. So I'm just going to move right along. That's page number seven. Page number eight, we get... Uh, we get a Chameleon Boy's worst memory. And it's basically him locked in one-on-one combat as part of some kind of ritual or rite of passage or, or something like that on the planet Durla. And being as this is called a fight to the death and being as Chameleon Boy is the only one that we know for a fact is still alive, we can reasonably guess that he killed his own brother. But again, this is a twist of, of all of the Legionnaires' different memories, right? It could be that, because we know that Mordru is, is amplifying the, the pain and suffering of all of, these, of all of these memories, right? These are not flashbacks. These are kind of warped and twisted memories of or tor- warped and twisted re- uh, recollections of all of these different characters' worst memories. This is not the literal memory itself. This is not a flashback. So it could be that there was no rape that happened on uh, Kono's ship, you know? It could be that that's the part that Mordru's throwing in just to make uh, Kono's memory even worse. It could be that uh, Chameleon Boy... Uh, didn't actually kill his brother, that maybe it was somebody else, or maybe uh, that he had to fight, and maybe it wasn't actually a fight to the death, and maybe it, w- or, or, may- or if it was, maybe it wasn't his brother, you know, or maybe his brother had nothing to do with it. Maybe it wasn't a fight to, to the death, and it wasn't with his brother, you know, on and on and on. So there's a little bit of deniability with all of these uh, flashbacks. Um, as starts becoming evident on page nine with Ultra Boy's uh, flashback, or worst memory, we see him, he's crawling around through, uh, literally through the belly of the beast, and uh, Joe is, I mean, you can only imagine, you know, just how disgusting this is, it's dark, it's it's probably smells awful in there, you know, Joe is probably just happy to, to even be alive, and all of that pretty well lines up with actual canon, but where things go south a little bit is, is, um, uh, when, when he finds uh, uh, Tinya's body in there. And that's the part that Mordrew added in, you know? Joe is experiencing this memory afresh as though Tinya really was inside the belly of the beast, even though when Joe himself was inside the belly of the beast, he hadn't even met Tinya yet. But that's not the point. The point is he's experiencing the, the pain and the suffering anew, afresh, as though it's happening right now with the added horror of finding Tinya's dead body. And it doesn't matter that it doesn't make, that that doesn't actually make linear sense. Joe is still experiencing the horror and the pain and the grief of all of that, you know? So anyways, that's page nine. Page 10 is, this is where it becomes a little bit 
more explicit. I mean, it, like I say, it's it's suggested on page nine that these are not actual literal memories, but page ten is really what gives it away. You've got Rock; he's remembering uh, Venado Bay, and and everything, and just what a horrible experience that must have been for him. And so he's experiencing that 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 pain, that anguish, that suffering afresh, and then. Then he finds his brother's body, magnetic kid, you know, then he finds his brother's body, Paul. And that's the moment that kind of gives it away for Rock, that this isn't actually literally happening, number one. And number two, this isn't even really my memory of it. My brother was never involved in anything to do with Venado Bay. And so he wouldn't have been there. And... You know, they didn't, he even says, they didn't kill Magnetic Kid at Venado Bay. They killed Cosmic Boy. So what Rock is saying here is they didn't literally kill Magnetic Kid. They figuratively killed Cosmic Boy. And he goes on to think uh, just internally, you went too far this time, Mordrew. You went too far. Like you've given it away, all right? You, anyway, so what I like about this is that Kono, she experiences this memory as though this is truly what her memory was, even though it wasn't, and she doesn't see through the illusion. Same thing with Chameleon Boy. He doesn't see through the illusion. Same thing with, with Joe. He doesn't see through the illusion. But Rock, Rock sees through the illusion. And so as a result, you can kind of figure that for as bad as Rock's memories of Venado Bay might be, it loses something here because he knows that Mordrew went over the top a little bit with it. So anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, getting into page 11, this is actually a little interesting bit of business here because apparently nobody really figured out the secret here, you know? Uh, there were five legionnaires who were subject uh, subjected to, to all of these... Uh, horrible memories that Mordrew's putting everybody through. You've got Kono, you've got Chameleon Boy, you've got Joe, you've got Rock, and now you've got Furball. Well, the other four Legionnaires' memories are present and accounted for. We know what they are. In Furball's worst memory, people refer to him first as Bryn Londo, and then they also refer to him as Timberwolf. And yet, apparently... A lot of Legion readers at the time that this issue came out, allegedly they just didn't put two and two together on that. They didn't realize that, oh my God, Furball is is Timberwolf. You know, they it's like that didn't sink in for them, even though it should have, because process of elimination should show you that the only possible person the only, or rather, the only po the only possible memory that Furball can be experiencing is this bit that talks about Bryn Londo, aka Timberwolf, and so the only logical thing that you can take from that is that Furball is Bryn Londo, and yet allegedly a lot of Legion readers at the time didn't catch that. So I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. Another thing, and this is more like dark humor, or black humor, or whatever you want to call it, but. This is uh, th this is on page twelve. We we finally catch up with Missa, 
And she's basically, she's a member of Mordru's harem, right? And you get the idea that there are dozens and dozens of women in this harem. And it's like all they do all day long is they're not even allowed to wear clothes. They just hang around in the gardens all day. And I guess Mordru summons one of them when he's in the mood, if you know what I mean. And that's apparently not a bad enough fate uh, for Missa, as far as Mordru is concerned. Because he's basically using her as a conduit here. Everything that Kono is experiencing and remembering and all that, Missa is also experiencing. Same thing with Chameleon Boy. Missa is experiencing that too. Jonah, Missa is experiencing that too. Rock, that too. Furball, that too. All, she's being subjected to all of this. So as bad as the as bad a deal as the other legionnaires are are getting right now, maybe it's cold comfort for them. But yeah, they're experiencing their worst memory. Yeah, they're experiencing that experiencing their worst memory as though it's happening to them right now. Yeah, they're experiencing an even more warped, more horrifying, more traumatic version of their worst memory as though it's happening right now. But at least it's only their worst memory. They're not really privy to what anyone else is going through. But here, poor Missa is getting all of it, all five warped worst memories that they all have. She can barely speak. She's drenched in sweat. It's like she's stuck in a horrifying dream or five horrifying dreams that she can't wake up from. And, you know, it's not really made explicit or even implicit anywhere in the text. It's nowhere in the dialogue. But I kind of have to wonder, you know, if Mordrew is going to go to all the trouble of subjecting poor Missa to all of these horrible, warped, worst memories, what's to say that he's not subjecting Missa to her own worst memory, warped similarly to the other Legionnaires? So it could be that she's also experiencing her own shit as well. And it's like, my God, I mean, it's like how much misery can anybody withstand? And the part about it that's just like, really sick, and it kind of shows you just how depraved and brainwashed and maybe even traumatized the uh, other people in in Mordru's harem really are, that one of this chick who looks like she's from Orion or something, she's just this green-haired naked chick, she's sitting there kind of talking trash to Missa a little bit. She's saying, come on, Missa, tell us what it's like. Okay, be that way. That's what I can't stand about you. You're so stuck up. You know, all the others say the same thing. None of them like you. And it's like, okay, what she's experiencing right now, I mean, she says, it, any of us would be thrilled if Mordru confided in us, and yet here you are making like such a, such a big deal out of it. You're all crying and shit. And it's like, whoa, you know, that's, that's just fucked up, you know? And again, I don't mean this in like a torture porn kind of way. I'm just saying that like, this is, this is just good writing. I dig it. You know, um, that the gif knows that Mordru, he would, he, he would twist the knife that extra little bit on Missa. And he would probably have these, just these poor deluded brainwashed other victims in the harem who just, they don't get it, you know? And so I don't know, just it's, it's, as sick and horrifying as all this stuff is, I mean, this is dark, guys, but as, as bad as it is, to me, it just, it smacks of creativity and vision that the GIF had his thinking cap on in this way, you know? 
So uh, speaking of darkness, we get even more of it on on uh, page 13. This this little scene takes place on the pan, uh, on the planet core. We basically see uh, Roxas. He's gone shopping, and he's trying to figure out what he want. You know what the clothes that he wants, and the sales clerk is just he's in fear at this point for his life because you see all these other. Uh, uh, sales reps that are just laying on the floor covered in blood and totally dead and stuff because I guess Roxas didn't didn't like what they had to tell him and so the the lone surviving sales clerk is you know he's just drenched in sweat he's wondering you know well great am I going to be the last one here and you get a fair amount of Roxas's uh, internal voices that are going on here. And there are quite a few to choose from. God knows. He's got quite a few. And they're kind of denoted by, you know, different handwriting, different fonts, and all that stuff. It's, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, it's really well done, you know? And it, I just like it. I mean, I, I like the fact that all of these different voices are all these different voices inside of Roxas's head are easy to distinguish one from another. You know, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So anyways, moving right along. Uh, basically, we get a little bit of a, a tiny little bit of exposition. This is on page 15. The dominators are, are, are talking amongst themselves. And there was something, there's one little bit of business that's going on here that just sort of confuses me. Uh, this is uh, page 15, panel 7. One of the dominators refers to Celeste as not Celeste Rockfish, Celeste Macaulay. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, where did that come from? Did somebody, was the character's name originally Celeste Macaulay, and then somebody wanted to uh, call her Celeste Rockfish, kind of as a joke on Rockford Files? You know, it just, I don't know. It, I don't think it comes out anywhere in the story, and I was really too lazy to do any research online and just, you know, find out about that. But all in all, you know, this is just, this is one of those things I, I definitely was a little bit curious about. So I don't know. I don't know. But uh, my memory of it is this, this never gets really elaborated or clar clarified upon or anything like that. So, excuse me, taking another sip off my Coke here. And more vapor, because why not? All right, just one more. All right, and then one last sip of my Coke as we... Uh, Head into the seventh inning stretch here. So, back on the planet Tharn, basically, uh, Mordru's uh, security forces, they, uh, they gas all of the Legionnaires and decide to toss all of them into the dungeon. All of them except one. Rock. And the, the chief of security even goes so far as to say, and he's speaking of Rock, he says... 
the emperor has taken an interest in him. And it's really not hard to see why. Rock was the only one to decipher the illusion of the warped worst memories. And so for that reason alone, just putting aside anything that's ever happened between Rock and Mordrew in the past, at least for me, it's easy to understand why it is that Mordrew would take a special interest in Rock at this particular moment, because he's the only one that, that was able to see through Mordrew's tricks. And so I think it, it's really quite logical that, that Mordrew would, would single out Rock and say, I want to talk to him. I, I want to meet with him. So it's good writing is the point. Getting into page 17, apparently this was a uh, cause of, of no small amount of controversy for quite a few Legion fans uh, back in 1990. Uh, basically, to put all of this in context, you had John Byrne's reboot of Superman with Man of Steel, which, among other things, it basically set up, number one, that Clark became Superman when he was an adult. There was no Superboy. And number two... Superman is the only survivor of the planet Krypton. Now, those two facts, all by themselves, you know, just ignoring everything else that John Byrne did with Superman, those two facts, all by themselves, spell trouble for the Legion of Superheroes. Number one, as has been made painfully clear at this point, Superboy can't possibly have been the inspiration for the Legion. Number two... Superman is the only survivor of the planet Krypton, which means that Kara Zor-El, which is to say Supergirl, cannot possibly be a member of the Legion of Superheroes. And yet, here we see a blonde woman wearing a red cape on Jezebel, which is to say the third moon of Tharn, keeping an eye on things, watching what's happening with the Legion, and deciding to fly off into action. But before she does, she drops her cape, she flies off, and we can see that she's wearing basically a space thong. And so you can see some butt cheeks on on page 17. And so this is, like I say, this was cause for no small amount of controversy because quite a few Legion fans read this particular page and thought, oh my god, Kara Zor-El is back. And by the way, guys, that is the name of that character, you know, Superman's cousin from the pre from uh, the pre-crisis, and I suppose now. Her name is Kara. It rhymes with Sarah. It does not rhyme with Mara. I don't care what anybody says. Chick's name is Kara. Anyway, but that's not this character's name. Uh, but a lot of people at the time, it, they read this and they thought, oh my God, is this Kara Zarel? Is she back? And the answer to that is no. No, she's not. This is not Kara Zor-El. It, it's actually Laurel Gand. And one of the criticisms that I've seen leveled against Laurel Gand in the Five Years Later era is that in a lot of ways, she really is a, a Kara Zor-El carbon copy. And there's, the thinking goes, not very much to distinguish Laurel Gand from Kara Zor-El. And I do see... Some crucial differences, not least of which being that she's apparently willing to fly around wearing a space thong, so I guess there's that. But I think I can understand where, you know, I, I can't say controversy, but where some of the confusion came from, where, 
you see this this blonde woman in an atmosphereless or on an atmosphereless uh, moon. She's out in space, wearing a red cape. She's got the headband going. I can understand where a lot of people would have looked at that, and especially since she's never called Laurel Gand anywhere in the story. I can understand why where they might have thought, oh my god, somehow Kara Zorel is back, and what the hell's going on? And, in fact, the answer to that is nothing. Nothing is going on. This is not Kara Zorel. Like I say, it's it's Laurel Gand. And me personally, I think there is enough of a difference between Laurel Gand and Kara Zorel that you can, actu- you can accurately say one is not a precise duplicate of the other. I mean, obviously... You can't really deny that Laurel Gand is a stand-in for Kara, okay? There's just, there's really no getting around that. You know, she's basically meant to serve, in some ways, a, a role kind of similar to what Kara did in the old Legion of Superheroes. But I don't think it's fair or accurate or right to say that one is a precise duplicate of the other. I just don't believe that is true. So, anyway... I must say, I just, I, I like Laurel Gand. I, I just, I dig this character. I especially like, for reasons I sort of outlined in the last episode, for some reason, I really like Laurel Gand in, in, in the post-Zero Hour Legion. And since, honestly, it may be repeating myself, but since it's more germane to this episode anyway, since this is Laurel Gand's first appearance, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and just kind of hash through all that right now. Like I said... Laurel Gand in the Five Years Later era is not an exact duplicate of of Kara, okay? This I do affirm. But at the same time, you know, you can't really argue that she's, like I say, she's not there to serve a kind of similar function in, in these stories that, that Kara always used to serve. So that's fine, you know? Laurel Gand is not Supergirl. Supergirl is not Laurel Gand, and I'm fine with all of that. But... I will say that there's there are some crucial things that set Laurel Gand apart from Supergirl. There's not a whole lot, you know. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and blow sunshine. There's really not very much that sets one apart from the other. That is less true with the post-zero hour Laurel, who, guys, she's got a flaw, okay? She's got a very serious flaw. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And this is the sort of thing that Marvel Comics, once upon a time, used to specialize in. You know, they Marvel Comics used to create characters that had real flaws. And these days, their characters typically don't really have flaws anymore. You know, or if they do, they're these really Mary Sue type of flaws of... You know, this this female character, she's just too perfect. That's her problem. She's too perfect. Or she's she's too smart. Or she's too pretty. Or it's just fucking bullshit like that, you know? Whereas, you know what? The post-zero hour Laurel, she has a real flaw, you know? And to me, the kind of the thing that makes post-zero hour Laurel Gand an interesting character is that when she saves anybody who is not a Daxamite, when she give, in fact, when she gives anybody who's not a Daxamite the time of day, you need to understand that's kind of a big deal for her. You know, her background, 
uh, where she where she comes from, what she believes in, doesn't really allow for, or at least it doesn't really encourage that sort of thing. It's okay to be altruistic, kind, compassionate, friendly, helpful to fellow Daxamites. But to non-Daxamites, you don't even want to touch them if you can avoid it. You know, and so that makes every heroic thing, every rescue that Laurel Gand performs, every noble deed that she engages in, makes it all the more noble in the post-Zero Hour uh, reboot by, vir uh, by virtue of the fact that, let's face it, she's kind of a racist. She has to rise above that in order to do the right thing. She will do the right thing. But she has to overcome a lot of mental obstacles in order to make that happen. And it would be fair to say that is nothing at all like Laurel Gand in the Five Years Later era. And honestly, you know, one is not really better than the other. I like them both equally. But I will give the post-Zero Hour Legion a shit ton of credit because they... They cared enough to take such a huge creative risk with, let's face it, a Supergirl surrogate, and the character actually turned out really well as a result, you know? And so, anyway, I've praised Keith Giffen for taking a lot of creative risks in, in this run of the Legion, so it seems only fair to compliment the creators behind the post-Zero Hour Legion for taking at least that one creative risk with Laurel post-Zero Hour. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling here. Oh, and wouldn't you know, I'm starting to go kind of long in this episode too, so I better kind of hurry this up a little bit. So in orbit above the planet Trom, uh, Cel uh, Celeste Rockfish and her, uh, her, her uh, bounty hunter, whose name is bounty they're basically preparing to make to make landfall on Trom. now one of the things that we do kind of need to at least set up right here i don't want to spoil ahead on this particular issue too much but guys there's more to bounty than what's shown in this issue right here if you're familiar with legion lore at all You've at least heard of Bounty's other name, so so there's that. But I'm just going to go ahead and be all cryptic about it right, right then and right there, and let's just go ahead and move right along. The uh, basically Celeste, uh, Celeste, Bounty, and their uh, companion Devlin Orion, who's kind of a Jimmy Olsen stand-in. They all make landfall on the planet Trom, and they're actually kind of afraid because, you know, God help them. What if they run into uh, Jan Ra? You know, what's going to happen there? And yes, I'm calling him Jan because the guy isn't Swedish. So he is a man, but he's not Swedish. His name is spelled J-A-N. So I'm calling him Jan, guys, not Jan. But anyway, so they run into uh, Jan Ra, and at first they're... You know, they're afraid to even be there because they're afraid that, hey, they may get vaporized. Isn't that what happens to 
everybody who ends up on Trom. And so at the bottom of page uh, 21 and then on all of page 22, Jana Ra basically says, oh, so now I'm vaporizing trespassers, am I? And he says, sorry to sneak up on you folks, but most of my visitors are looking to scavenge, you know. Go ahead and touch the mon monuments if you like, just don't take any. I'm a little sensitive about respect for the dead, because on Trom, that's all we have left. And we see here, this is a full, splay, a full page splash, I'll circle back to that in just a minute. This is a full page splash, it's uh, Jana Ra, looking kind of like, uh, almost like a shaman slash survivalist looking dude or maybe he's looking like he's gonna go camping or something like that and it's like oh my god is that is that what this guy's life is you know he's just wandering around his ghost town of a home world he's the only member of his race that's still alive and he who knows maybe he hasn't even talked to anybody in years and years and years you know and that's what that's what Jana Ra's life has been reduced to, you know, uh, Element Lad, you know, once one of the great heroes uh, in all of the galaxy, and it's come to this, you know, and I don't know, it's just sad, and I don't know, just really poignant, you know. I, the other thing, though, is that it's also really powerful, because like I say, guys, this is Legion of Superheroes number six, and on every single page of every single issue leading up to this point, page 22 and here in issue number six, we see basically variations on the same thing, which is to say a nine panel grid. You get nine panels on every single page. Now there may be time when there's continuity from one panel to another, making kind of like a panoramic or something like that. But in general, you can set your watch to it. There are nine panels on every single page. No more, no less. And that isn't true of page 22. This is a full page splash. This is a big moment. And, you know, seeing uh, Jana Ra, he's back, he's alive. And apparently he's not the murderous, psychotic weirdo, uh, nomadic wanderer, hermit, whatever, that the galaxy has is in fear that he's become, at the very least. And it's just, this is a big moment. And the thing is, I mean, we live in a in a, a time and in a place when it's like, yeah, you almost have to wonder sometimes, do comic book artists even know how to tell stories anymore where one panel leads into the next panel, leads into the next panel, new line. Continues in the next panel, continues in the next panel, continues in the next panel, new line. Continues into the next panel, continues into the next panel, concludes on that panel of that page onto the next page you know do they even fucking know how to do that anymore or is everything or is a comic book issue basically a collection of uh, uh splash pages now you know and it just it, it just sort of makes you wonder sometimes but here the gif has definitely earned it number one just because of his restraint number two because of the significance of what this means you know the legion of superheroes slowly but surely are coming back together and that I think is one of the big motivators behind having a full page splash of of Jana Raw right here on Trom. This is just and plus it just looks cool too. That's something else. Lots of detail, um, lots of 
And I mean like detail and things like broken off rocks and shards and all these things, uh, the crystals and all that. It's just, it's just really well done, you know. So I like it. I think it turned out great. This is a, a great issue. I love this issue, as dark as it gets at times. Um, I love this issue. I love this series. And I'm going to be real honest with you guys. Um, the promise that I made to myself was that I was going to basically go from Legion of Superheroes number two to number six, to at least number six. Now, after that, maybe I'm going to decide to move on to something else, or maybe I'll stay with the Legion a little bit longer. I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't really made up my mind on that yet. But one of the things, though, that I, that I do want to say is that this is the sort of podcasting that I wanted to do after I came back from my hiatus. Instead of going from one thing to a new thing to a new thing to a new thing, you know, having something different every single time, I wanted to stick with the same subject matter and just kind of ride it out a little bit. And so going forward, I've still got a couple of uh, episodes that have just kind of never been released. You know, I recorded them, you know, two or three or in some cases even four years ago. Those are a little bit more rare. I think there's only one of those. But yeah, there, I think there's one from like four years ago that I just never got around to releasing. And so, you know, I think there's going to be a little bit more scattershot stuff coming up in the relatively new, near future. But, you know, going forward, this is a lot more in line with the type of podcasting that I want to do, where I just spend a couple of weeks going through uh, something that is really scratching the itch for me right now, that my fanboy muse just can't get enough of this stuff. And so I guess what I'm saying is if you enjoyed these Legion episodes, well, number one, I mean, I want to go to at least... Uh, issue number 24 of this series you know I'm, I'm not promising that I will but that's that's at least the goal you know I want to at least get that far uh, number two there may still be you know uh, a couple of more Legion episodes to come in uh, the next in the near future put it that way in the next couple of weeks I haven't made up my mind yet um, and after that I'm gonna shift gears it'll be that probably only that for, you know, uh, the next couple of weeks after that. And then maybe it'll be something else for a few more weeks and then something else for it. So you're still going to get a fair amount of variety, but it's going to be a little bit more spread out. You know, I'm not going to necessarily rush around from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. So just something to think about. Now, as it stands right now, I don't necessarily know what next week's episode is going to be about. There's a chance that I may just uh, move right ahead and go straight into issue number seven. There's also a chance I may decide to change the subject and maybe talk about something else for a while. But either way, guys, I've had a serious fucking blast uh, working my way through these Legion issues. I love this series. I love the Five Years Later era, or at least this point, up to this point in the Five Years Later era. I'm gonna, Guys, I'm going to be honest with you, there does come a time when the wheels sort of come off the wagon a little bit. But at least for right now, five years later is just phenomenal. I love these issues. I love these stories. Love these characters. I love this take on the universe. And overall, it's just it's a shit ton of fun. I love it. Can't get enough of it. And I'm definitely going to be coming back to it. Again, I don't necessarily know when, but I'm definitely going to be coming back to this at some point. And I don't necessarily know what I'm going to be talking about next week. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. So... 
assuming there even is an episode next week. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>